Thank you for joining us for Sound Reasoning with Christian apologist and minister Perseus Poku of Sound Reasoning Ministries. It's our prayer that today's program will educate, train, and empower you to defend your Christian faith with confidence. Perseus has his bachelor's in history and a master's degree in apologetics. We hope you enjoy this time of equipping so that you can answer questions to defend your Christian faith effectively. Now here's Perseus Poku on Sound Reasoning. Welcome to Sound Reasoning. I'm your host, Persis Poku. On today's episode, we want to begin a series on the deity of Jesus Christ. The deity of Jesus Christ. Uh, this will come under Christology, the study of Christ. And in this series, we want to take a look at what the Bible says about the ontology of Jesus Christ, his beingness. Uh, as I've said before, uh, we are human beings, but uh, God is a divine being. And his being is what makes God God. And him being God is wholly other than us being human. So in a sense, God is totally different than we are. Uh, he doesn't sleep. He knows the number of hairs on our head. Um, God is distinct, and the Bible makes that clear. So as it relates to Christ, we look at various verses that illuminates or sheds light on who Jesus is. And we know on a cursory level that he had a human nature as well as a divine nature. Uh, we know on a cursory level uh, that his, in terms of his humanness, um, that he's acquainted with all of our ways. The struggles that we go through, Jesus is, uh, is acquainted with it. Uh, the uh, temptations that we endure, Jesus is acquainted with it because of his humanness. Now, in terms of his divine nature, uh, that doesn't subside just because he took on a human nature. So we want to uh, discuss and try to unpack what the scripture actually say about Jesus. And for many of us, we think of Christ as the baby born in Bethlehem, meek and mild, and he is those things. That's the record. But when he comes back, he's coming back as judge. And so I believe that our view of Jesus Christ shapes and determines what we do in the future. And if we don't have a biblical view of Christ, then our trajectory in terms of where God wants us to be is not going to be where it needs to be. And as we begin this episode on the deity of Christ, I'll unpack that a little bit more. So let us begin uh, this introduction on Christ's deity. This doctrine in terms of the deity of Christ is not fabricated. It wasn't made up by man. This is what the Bible reveals to us when we read it, when we study it. And the early Christians, um, they struggled with how to articulate this doctrine because it's not man-made. And in their struggle to apprehend what they were reading, 
some of them uh, got the interpretation incorrect. But uh, as God always do, there were those that stood up and were uh, accurate in their interpretation of the deity of Jesus Christ. Now, the deity of Jesus Christ um, is attached to the Trinity. And I know some people have argued, well, the doctrine of the Trinity is not biblical because you don't find the word Trinity in the Bible. And our argument is it doesn't, um, you don't have to use the term Trinity. You can sit the three in oneness, regardless of which one you decide to use, the doctrine is still in uh, the Bible. And another counter argument says if if you're going about that method, whereas the Trinity is not in the Bible, so you're going to reject the doctrine, then ask yourself, is the word Bible in the Bible? But yet we know what it represents. So again, you can call it the three in oneness. Uh, The Trinity was not, uh, the doctrine of the Trinity was not created from paganism as some asserts. Um, The doctrine of the Trinity is not man-made. It is God who's uh, revealed to us that there's one God, but yet uh, revealed in three persons, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. And so we'll do another episode on the doctrine of the Trinity, but I just wanted to show the relationship between the deity of Jesus Christ and the doctrine of the Trinity. So in terms of the early church, um, there is a phrase that I want to introduce. It's called the hypostatic union of Jesus Christ. I know it's a big uh, term, hypostatic, H-Y-P-O-S-T-A-T-I-C, union of Jesus Christ, hypostatic union of Jesus Christ. And this deals with the relationship between uh, Christ's two natures as existing in, in his person. Uh, the word hypostatic comes from the Greek word uh, hypostasis, which means being, which means Christ is fully God and fully human at the same time. Christ is fully God and, hu- uh, and, and fully human at the same time. And in terms of this relationship, what we're saying is Christ um, has this, uh, t- these two natures, whereas he added on humanity, but didn't lose any divinity. Since the first century, early Christians struggled to fully comprehend and articulate this uh, particular doctrine. One of the areas of contention centered around his beingness, Christ's beingness. Um, is he a human being? Is he a divine being? What is he, right? So this is a doctrine that the early church struggled to apprehend, comprehend, and then to articulate. So questions such as, is Jesus an authentic human? Is he he really human or is it some sort of uh, uh, mysterious human or some sort of lower G human in terms of lower God human? Is he fully human? And the answer is yes. Number two, is he fully God or is he a small g God? Is is he fully God, meaning equal with the Father, or is he a lesser God than the Father? 
So these are questions that the early church were struggling with. Then the third, did Christ have a beginning or is he eternal? Right? Is, is, is Christ a finite being or is he an infinite being? Is he eternal? So the church had to address many teachings concerning the deity of Jesus Christ. And like I said before, some who profess to be learned, some who profess to be theologians, got, they got the conclusion wrong. Uh, they, uh, some thought that Jesus was a lesser God than the Father. Uh, some thought that uh, Jesus wasn't a fully an authentic human, that he was some sort of a, a, a step above humanity. And uh, uh, some thought that he was purely spiritual, like the Gnostics, uh, because they didn't believe in the material world. So they thought uh, that Jesus' appearance to have a human body uh, was strictly uh, in, uh, um, uh, uh, some sort of delusion, uh, a mirage. And so uh, the Gnostics taught this in the early centuries of the church. But there's two groups that I, li- I want to highlight because their teachings have still carried on, uh, maybe not as popular as it used to be when it first uh, started, but it's still being perpetuated today regarding Christ. And these are uh, heretical views. Uh, these are aberrant views. These views should not be taught in any church. These views should not be taught in any symposium in terms of Christ, uh, uh, Christian symposiums, uh, these views should not be preached. So the first group are the modalist, M-O-D-A-L-I-S-T, modalist. And sometimes you hear uh, their views referred to as modalism. Now, modalism was created by a priest called Sibelius around 215 A.D., And he taught his disciples in Rome that God revealed himself in different modes as one person. And what he means by that is, uh, I'm going to give you a basic example. So instead of God in three persons, what Sibelius was teaching was um, God in one person, not three. So in essence, he was saying the father became Jesus Christ, and then Jesus Christ became the Holy Spirit. And again, that is a heretical view. The Bible doesn't support that. But many people latched on to this type of teaching and started perpetuating uh, this uh, heretical view of Jesus Christ uh, or or the Godhead. So again, Sibelius uh, preached that God uh, exists in different modes, so he was the father, then he became the son, then he became the Holy Spirit. And that's not a biblical view. I'm going to say it again. That's not a biblical view. So be very careful when you hear this type of teaching. Now, uh, if you're familiar with the teachings of the Jehovah Witnesses, um, their views in terms of their teachings are very similar uh, in some ways to uh, Sibelius teachings. Now, the second uh, group are called the Arianism, uh, Arianism, and their leader was Arius. And this existed in the third century, uh, uh, around the third century as well, 
uh, more so in the fourth century. Arius was a priest from Cyrene who taught a view of Christ which was not consistent with classical Christianity. Now, he taught that Jesus was not fully divine because he had a beginning. He argued that Jesus was a lesser God because he was created by God at some point. This is what Arius was uh, asserting. Arius, however, he misunderstood the phrase, the only begotten. And we see that phrase numerous times in the Bible. He interpreted that phrase as Jesus being born or brought into existence, that term only begotten, as exemplified in, let's say, John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believed on him should not perish but have everlasting life. So that term only begotten threw um, Arius off, and he misinterpreted that as, uh, as, as, as almost like a father uh, get uh, uh having a son that's being born so he believed that the father created jesus and that's a heretical view jesus was not created by the father so Arius's example of john three sixteen or first john 4 9 misinterpretation of the term only begotten is a heretical view okay and then he also cited colossians 1 15 and in colossians 1 15 um we have to take a look at the previous verses, Colossians chapter 1, verses 13 through 15. It says, for he rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the son he loves, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. The son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. And so, uh, again, he sees that term uh, only begotten or firstborn, and he immediately assumes that it, it means Jesus had a beginning, or Jesus was born first, or God created Jesus first. But that's not what that term means, especially in Colossians uh, 1.15. That word that's being used, firstborn, in Colossians 1.15 is the Greek word prototokos, and that word means first in rank, or Christ having the authority and rank over our creation. That's what that context is, uh, is teaching us. Not that he was first created. If uh, Paul wanted to say Jesus was first created, he would have used the word protokistos, which means first created. But he used the word prototokos, which means first in rank, first ruler, uh, uh, the authority. He has the authority as God over all the creation because he along with the father created everything. And so it's very important that when we go to scripture, not only do we read the scripture, not only do we attempt to study the scripture, but we uh, practice proper hermeneutics, which is the science and art of biblical interpretation. So in other words, it's the way that we need to translate the Bible, the approach that we use. You can't just uh, go to a word in the Bible and assume it means the same thing in your native tongue that the original, that the writer intended for his original audience. Uh, the first question, I always say this, the first question is not what does the scripture means to me. The first question is what was the intended meaning for the original audience by the writer? That's the first question. And once 
uh, you, you ask that question, you have a better chance of arriving at the correct conclusion. What did Paul mean when he was writing to the church of Corinth? What did Paul mean when he was writing to uh, the churches in, in Colossae? What did Paul mean when he was writing to the churches in the Galatian region? That's the question we need to ask ourselves. It isn't what does the Bible or what does the passage say to me? No, the, the, the initial question should be what is the intended meaning to that audience? And once you find out what the intended meaning is for that audience, then we have to uh, ascertain the prescriptive meaning for us. Now, what is it? What's the principle from that message or those instructions? What's the overarching principle, the universal principle that we as modern Christians are to follow? That is uh, a question that comes later. But the first question is not what it means to me. And this was some of the issues with some early um, uh, priests and early theologians is they asked the wrong question and the approach was incorrect. So as a result, they came away with the wrong conclusion. So we're talking about the deity of Jesus Christ. And what I want to do is I want to take a look at a passage in the Old Testament, Isaiah 9 and 6. For a child will be born to us. A son will be given to us, and the government will rest on his shoulders. And his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. Mighty God. It's right there in Isaiah 9 and 6. It's talking about Jesus. His name, the government will rest on his shoulders, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. And it's talking about Jesus. Jesus is not a lesser God than the Father. Jesus is equal to the Father. Jesus is the same ontology as the Father. And in the scriptures, we find this clearly, that uh, descriptions used of God that we normally associate with God the Father is also used of Christ. The same um, descriptions, the same characteristics used of God that we normally associate with God the Father is used also of Jesus. For example, Alpha and Omega, we find this description in Isaiah 41 and 4. Well, in Revelations 1, 17 through 18, that's used of Jesus. Savior, God is Savior or our Savior, Isaiah 43 and 3. Well, in Matthew 1 and 21, we see the same um, title or functionality used of Christ. He's king. That is used of God, Psalm 95 and 3. And then in the New Testament, Revelation 17 and 14, it is used of Jesus. Judge, Psalm 96 and 13. And then in 2 Timothy 4 and 1, it says Jesus is also judge. Light, Psalm 27 and 1, that's used of God. And then in John 9 and 5, that's used of Jesus. Redeemer, Isaiah 48 and 17. And in Ephesians 1 and 7, that's used of Jesus. Shepherd, Genesis 49 24, is used of God. And then Hebrews 13 and 20, that's used of Jesus. Creator, Isaiah 40 and 28. And then in the New Testament, Hebrews 1, 
1 through 3, and then uh, 1 and 10, you'll see that uh, it's used of Jesus as creator, forgiver of sins, Daniel 9 and 9. And then in Colossians 3.13, it's used of Jesus that he forgives sins. Now, only God can forgive sins. That, that's a very important uh, principle or doctrine to remember. Only God can forgive sins. Even when the apostles were healing and people wanted to worship them, they rejected the worship because they were not divine. They were not God. But Jesus, accept worship. Jesus forgave sins, and only God can do that. Omnipresent. Proverbs 15 and 3. And in Matthew 28 and 20, uh, that's used of Jesus in the sense that Jesus commissioned his disciples and he, he ended by saying, I'll be with you always. So it doesn't matter where you and I go, Jesus is with us and he's omnipresence uh, uh, in that matter. His omnipresence is always with us. Uh, omnipotent, all powerful. Uh, that's used of God, Isaiah 40, 10 through 31. And then John 10 and 18, that description is used of Jesus. Immutable, meaning unchanging. Uh, Malachi 3 and 6, and that is used of Jesus in Hebrews 13 and 8. Receiver of worship, Matthew 4 and 10, as I just alluded to, and it's used of Jesus in the same way in John chapter 9, verse 38. And if you want an exhaustive list, um, I encourage you to get the book by uh, Dr. Ron Rose, um, Christ Before the Manger. Christ Before the Manger It's a very uh, good book to have in your library. Now, let's look at the New Testament. In the New Testament, we see that Jesus is called God. Uh, John 1.1, one, one, uh, one of my favorite books, uh, John, uh, opens with this motif of in the beginning God. And I call it a motif because uh, John wanted to connect us back to Genesis where uh, the book of Genesis starts with the phrase in the beginning, God. And so he uses the same illustration for his writing of this gospel. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. In the beginning was the Lagos, and the Lagos was with Theos, and the Lagos was Theos. So right there in the beginning, uh, John have no qualms about telling us that Jesus is God. Um, The word was with God, and the word was God, and the word became flesh. And he tells us, John points us to what, he, what his true meaning is. He's trying to illustrate to us that Jesus is just more than a baby born in Bethlehem. We have a Savior who's divine. So as a divine Savior, he answers our pleas. He hears us. He, he, he talks to us, and uh, he can answer our prayers. Uh, he's, he, he's not just a religious sage. He's not just... A, a, a human prophet. Jesus is more than that. Jesus is divine and he's powerful because he is divine. He's the only one that could uh, absolve us from our sins. He was the perfect sacrifice. So if you are listening to this uh, show and you don't know him, uh, please invite him into your heart. He's the only one that can save you. If you do know him, it's just a reminder that we serve a mighty God who is divine and able to answer our prayers. Well, we'll continue with part two next week, but I want to encourage you to continue to do for the truth what so many people do for a lie. And remember, if you want to give, please go on our website. May the Lord 
bless you and keep you. Thanks for listening to Sound Reasoning with apologist and minister Perseus Poku from Sound Reasoning Ministries. It's our prayer that today's lesson has equipped you to share and defend your Christian faith with boldness. Sound Reasoning Ministries offers training in apologetics, biblical studies, and systematic theology. Join in on discussions on Facebook at Sound Reasoning Ministries. For more information about the ministry, to send an email, ask a question, or support the ministry, visit online at srministries.org. That's srministries.org. Listen again next week at this same time. And remember, Titus 1.9 says, Hold firm to the trustworthy message as has been taught so that you can encourage others by sound doctrine and refute those who oppose it. Sound Reasoning Ministries, srministries.org. Have you ever considered yourself a messenger? Whether it's mics like this, bookshelves around the world, stages to take or art to make or perhaps businesses to build, It's time we start testifying truth unashamedly, creatively, and in love. My name is Tamara Andress, the host of the Messenger Movement Podcast, which is designed to catalyze Christians to speak, write, build, and testify. If you're ready to turn your message into a movement and want to run with other messengers doing the thing at scale globally, search and follow the Messenger Movement Podcast on your favorite podcast platform today or lifeaudio.com.